Thank you for being here. And thank you for being patient with me as I bumbled through all the details this morning. You know, it can be really awkward to be in a, in a different place. It made me think about times when uh, my wife and I have been really blessed to travel to other countries and go to church services in other countries. And the thing that often seems to happen is, you know, when you're a guest in another country, you don't realize until you're there that you get to speak. <laughs> and so, and so uh, you can imagine what it's like to be in a place where you don't necessarily even speak the same language and then someone pushes you out in front of everybody. And so I was thinking of that this morning. I was like, well, you know, at least we're speaking the same language. So if I mess something up, someone will tell me in English. I'm just going to move this over here. All that to say that I'm excited to get into the Word this morning because in all the places that I've been, that's what unites us is the knowledge of Jesus. You know, sometimes I think that... Um, we, we sort of take for granted the things that we know about Christ, especially if we've grown up in church, right? It's, it's like the backstory to something that we're doing, and we forget that it's not the backstory, it's the actual story. It's the actual thing. This story of Jesus, uh, who he was, and what he did for us, and what that means for us, colors everything in our lives, whether it's yesterday, tomorrow, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, all of it, when you're a Christian, is colored by what you know about Christ. And so, um, as I was preparing to speak this week, um, I have sermons from when I used to work at a church kind of canned, and I had a really, really busy week. Um, I work at Cathedral Home, and one of the things I do is teach youth mental health first aid. It's it's an eight-hour training, and so as the calendar would have it, I had one of those a couple days ago, and then I have to do it again in a couple of days um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So it's a lot to get ready for, and I thought, you know, I'll just I'll just get one of those old sermons out. And, and just, you know, pry the lid off that and use that. I won't have to prep. And and I kind of had this feeling, you know, that feeling how God works kind of in your gut. Um, I know when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not talking about the the blood pumping unit. It's talking kind of about your gut where you, you know, you, you sense those deepest things. And I had a feeling I wasn't going to get away with that. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, you know, still haven't learned to just go with that from the beginning. So I was going on the computer, looking through some old sermons, and and uh, I just had that kind of. Is it terrible to admit I had a sinking feeling? Because <laughs> I don't think you're really supposed to say that when you're talking about getting ready for church. But I kind of had a sinking feeling, like I knew this was going to happen. This is not. This is not, however you want to put it, this is not what's on God's heart for this week, I guess is the way I would say it. And and I had felt like I ought to preach from 1 John 4, which is one of those really familiar kind of cliche passages, right? So we'll be working out of 1 John 4, starting with verse 7 this morning. So if you know that song from the 70s, then you already know the words because you know the beloved let us love one another lyrics. And so, you know, I... I Mike Habit at our house is, uh, we have a, a cool little spot back by our bedroom. It's like a little library with a comfortable chair in there. And so I went back there, got the Bible out, and I was looking over this passage again. And I got to tell you, you know, I just was, was moved as I prepared for the sermon of looking through what I thought of as one of the most familiar passages. I mean, my goodness, you know, I, I know this passage. I've heard this passage a thousand times maybe. How many times have I read it? And as I was going through it, I realized I still have so much to learn because this passage is about love, and we know that, but it's really about who God is, and it's really about God's nature. And so that's uh, that's really what was on my mind as I was preparing. And, and as I was going through verse by verse, 
and learning so much from a passage that I've looked at so many times. When I got done, I really kind of felt like a fool and, you know, even even said to God just a little apology. <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought, why would I have wanted to miss that for the sake of convenience? Why would I have wanted to miss that time I had? I don't know if the sermon is going to be any good or not, but it was great for me to spend that time with, with God getting ready. And why would I have wanted to miss that? But you know what? That's the story of everyday life, isn't it? Uh, I need to read my Bible more. And then you do. You have you have one of those mornings where you manage to actually find the time to maybe get a whole a whole good rich time of maybe two or three chapters of a specific book and you're you're all there, you're awake and and you think, why don't I do this every day? Why would I want to miss that? And then most of us don't do it every day still. You know, life happens and and uh, I feel like I've gotten in a pretty good routine. I don't know about you, but I still have those days where I'm just in a rush and something else takes the place of that time with God. And, and I always just feel dumb. I don't know how else to put it when I come back to it later because um, it's what we get out of his word that that empowers us. It, it shapes us. It'll kind of shape and craft our whole day if we spend just a little bit of good time in the word. And so that's kind of a kind of a sidetrack, but it also is exactly what we're talking about this morning as we go through this passage, is that this passage may be about something a little bit different than, than what we typically think of or you know what we assumed it was about. So let's go ahead and start, and thank you, Dan, for doing the PowerPoint on this thing. It was kind of a challenge getting that projector going, so I appreciate Dan. He's going to have to sit back there and hit the space bar every so often because... I, I am not as tech savvy as Pastor Mike, so I can't like get my phone out and work that magic. I just have to do it kind of old school. So, if you don't mind, I just want to pray once more before I start because I don't want to get in the way of this. Let's pray. God, I just want to want to pray this morning. Um, that even as I'm speaking, if if I start going down some weird rabbit trail, <laughs> just rein me in, and uh, and would you just uh, open up this word for everybody who's here today, open up their hearts to hear it, if it's maybe a little too familiar, or we're sleepy, or whatever, but I know you've got something for us this morning, so I guess what I really want to ask is for all of us, myself included, that our hearts, and our eyes, and our ears will be open to your word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting with 4, 7, and 8. And we'll just go through this one or two verses at a time. Um, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what is love? I mean, talk about things that we take for granted and think we know. You can just roll right through this passage, but but what is love? You know, one of the things I really liked about when I um, went to school to study theology is they required us to do biblical languages. Um, and the program I was in, you got to choose a focus, Hebrew or Greek, and I chose Greek just because I was more interested in New Testament. And then one of the things I learned right away is that in the Bible there's more than one word for love. And you, you may already know that. I know a lot of people do know that already. But, but if you don't, there actually are four words for love in the New Testament. Um, depending on where you look, sometimes they're pronounced differently. But phileo, storga, eros, and agape. And so 
just in a nutshell, what that allows a biblical writer to do is to differentiate between I love pizza and I love my wife with a, a more special word. So, you know, if you've been to Philadelphia, you know that's the city of brotherly love, and that's, that's a Greek word um, from phileo, which is that, that brotherly love. So you know what, you, what that means. You think of maybe Jonathan and David in the Bible who had that brotherly love um, for one another. They had each other's back at all times. Uh, Storga, I, I like the sound of that because it's kind of guttural, and that's like a family love. That might be the love you have for your in-laws. You, you kind of have to. <laughs> it's kind of not an option, but maybe they drive you crazy. But you do love them, and, and you would do whatever you needed to do for them out of that love. And then Eros, that's uh, the love that, that uh, is where babies come from. That's another conversation for later. <laughs> and then agape, of course, is the most important one in the Bible because agape is the love that comes from God. And, and the easiest way to, uh, to lay that out is to call that an unconditional love. Um, and so in this passage, just so you know, every single time it says love, it's talking about unconditional love. I went back and double-checked in the, in the Greek interlinear, and sure enough, every single love in this passage is agape. It's unconditional love. It's not that storga love, like God loves us because he has to, because we're family, because he made us. It's that unconditional love. It's not that we love one another because we have to. He's calling us to that unconditional love. So I just have to put that out there in the name of honesty before we go any further because it gets harder. And then, of course, so familiar to us, God is love. That's one of the most familiar Christian tenets. That's Sunday school stuff to know that God is love. But I guess what was so profound to me in going through this passage is that I realized if you don't know God and you don't know love as represented through Christ in this story, then you can't possibly understand love or God. And that got me thinking about the world that we live in because, you know, over, over this weekend as much as any, you think about conflict. I think about my grandpa who, who had to uh, fight in World War II um, from Australia working his way toward Japan. He was with those guys. And uh, we all know how that story ended, and thankfully he was able to come home. But a really cool thing happened. My, so my grandfather, he fought in Papua New Guinea for most of the time that he served. And my wife and I got the chance to go to Papua New Guinea on a ministry trip. Um, when we, were, we hadn't even been married that long. But my grandpa never talked about the, you know, what World War II was like. He never talked about any of the things that happened. And, um, and I didn't really press him. I knew he was a hero. I knew about his Purple Hearts. And, and uh, when we got to go on that trip, I came back and then I went to visit him. And I told him about the things we saw there because it's a third world country. So uh, a lot of things were still the same. If you, if you can believe this, they were still using Allied airstrips with that plate steel with the holes in it. That was still there when we went there in, uh, I was at 2000. Um, so I came home, I said, Grandpa, you would not believe it. Like the Kwanzaa, hut, the Kwanzaa huts and the, the plate steel, and it's still there. They're still using it. And he thought that was so amusing. And, and he really opened up. And that was the first time that we began to have that dialogue. Um, and, you know, that wasn't the dialogue about his experience of, uh, of war. Interestingly enough, it wasn't really about war. It was it was about life, and that's what I most appreciated about those conversations with Grandpa before he passed away, is it encompassed everything. 
You know, he couldn't talk about his service without talking about coming home. He couldn't talk about his injuries without talking about healing. And he couldn't talk about um, the violence, the pain, the suffering without the redemption. He couldn't talk about being there without talking about coming home and being all here. And I'm so thankful for those conversations um, because it changed the way I looked at the man. And, and I, I, I finally knew him. I think I, I really knew who he was completely um, before he passed on, and I'm so thankful for that. You know, how many times do we look at the world, our own city, and um, our state, our country, and the whole world, and maybe as Christians we just kind of shake our head at the, the lostness of the world or the lostness of people, and, and sometimes we slide into judgment. Do you know what I mean? We're not evaluating all the things that are wrong with the world, but we slip into this kind of ugly thing where we're judging the ignorance of the world. What are these people doing? What are they thinking? What is wrong with that person? What's wrong with that person? And it's, it's an easy thing to do. I mean, you know, you look around, things will drive you crazy. They'll frustrate you. And when you know the truth and you see people living way below it, it should be offensive to you. It should be. Because you know that if God has a good and perfect plan and... Other people are messing it up, although it's usually us as much as anybody. But if you look around at your country, your city, and you think, man, that is not living up to God's plan, that should be frustrating and offensive. But oh, if it ends there, it's worthless because all that breeds is bitterness, resentment, all those kind of things that they don't get us anywhere. And so as I was looking through this passage, it got me thinking, how can you judge somebody for loving wrong if they don't know how to love? How can you judge somebody for, you might say, going against God if they don't know God? And in particular, how can we ever stand in judgment over someone for that if we are the ones that are failing to bring that knowledge into our families, our jobs, our community, and our world? And it was pretty convicting for me, I'll tell you, uh, because I do that kind of thing as much as anybody. So in, in this pursuit of, of what is love, I really like this theologian named Dallas Willard uh, who says that uh, love is willing good for others. That was the definition that he ultimately came up with. The reason he said that is because, you know, it's easy to think of, of love as being an action or something that we do, but it actually goes way back before that into our heart and our motives. Jesus was always talking about that. And, you know, who cares about what you say because talk is cheap who cares about what you do because you might be pretending even the pharisees did a great job of doing things but jesus always said what's going on in your heart what is inside of there in that secret place and i think i like that definition of love being willing good for others because that's the truth right what's in your heart if you say well i'm going to do this for you because i'm a christian but really i kind of hate you that's not love if you say uh, you know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna not say what I really think of you because I'm a Christian. Who cares? I think Jesus made it pretty clear. We might as well just say it, right? Think about the kind of crazy things that he taught the holy people of his day. I don't sleep around Jesus. Oh, do you ever you ever look at the pretty girls lustfully? Ooh. You know, he he got right into the heart of the matter. And so let's keep that in mind as we go a little a little further into this text. Let's go to verse 9 and 10, if you don't mind hitting that space bar for me, Dan. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So again, look at verse 10, what John is saying here. He's defining love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Remember what I was saying a while ago about how this can become a backstory? And it's, this is the story. So how on earth can you look down on somebody and judge them for not knowing what love is if they don't know this? We take this for granted. This, this story and this narrative about Christ, if we're a Christian, and especially if we grew up in the church, is so ingrained that we don't have to think about it. But imagine hearing that for the first time. Imagine hearing the gospel for the first time. How would that wreck your whole worldview if you've just been going along in life and trying to kind of be safe and protect yourself, and maybe live selfishly for the sake of being happy and protecting yourself, and you've never heard that before? And not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So in a nutshell, not that we did something really great, not that we were so spectacular, but that God loved us. So all I really want to add in, into this passage is that we know from Christ's teaching who us is, right? Us is not us in the church. Us is all of God's children. Us is all of God's sons and daughters. Those who came to church today, those who didn't come to church today, those whose parents have never brought them to church and they've never set foot in one, those who are afraid to set foot in one because they think that, you know, it would be uncomfortable, they'd be unwelcome, wouldn't fit in. That's, that's who God loves. So what are the results of that? Well, let's go to verse 11 and 12 now. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. John seemed to think that to see real love from us was to really see God in us. Here's a thought. How often do we pray for people that we care about? This could be coworkers that you know. Uh, what are the words that we use as Christians? My coworker is so lost. My brother, my sister is so lost. My neighbor is so lost. Um, you know, so it's kind of a churchy thing to say. And so out of a response to that, maybe we pray for them. And we, we will say, God, I just really want my neighbor, my brother, my son, my daughter, whoever, to experience you. And, you know, I, I know that that would just change their life. If they understood who you were, what you did for them, that would change their whole world. So, God, will you just, will you just do something, God? so that they can experience you and know who you are. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. How many times do we kind of pray that prayer, and yet we fail to pray for God to be seen and understood through us, when that is the biblical calling? It's almost as if it would be a conversation where we would say, God, please reveal yourself. Let my neighbor experience you. Uh, we don't get along so good. I know that would change their life. And then the phone rings and it's God calling you back. And God says, that is an awesome idea. Go get them. And they, whoa, what are you talking about, God? Like, I want you to 
you know, do something cool, like, I don't know, make the, you know, make, appear to them or something. And then, you know, and then God says, that's a good idea. Why don't you go over there right now so I can appear to them. You know, Mike shared that, Pastor Mike shared that quote a few weeks ago. Um, I, I would assume he probably did it in both services, but there's that Francis of Assisi quote that people love. Share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, which is a nice quote, which goes to say that we ought to live lives that uh, are such that people know we're Christians. We don't have to say, well, I'm a Christian, and I go to First Christian Church, and I'm there 51 out of 52 Sundays because I am super holy. We, we should live lives where people know that we're Christians. So that's a great quote, but it can also be an excuse. Uh, you know, Paul talks about natural revelation and how we can look at the mountains, we can look at beautiful things, and, and we get this revelation that, man, there's, there's something more. Um, you know, what, there's, there's got to be something bigger, all those kinds of things. And, and maybe the very people that we're frustrated with, that we wish knew something about Jesus, are having these moments. Uh, I think about, for me, some of the most profound moments, like when, when we had our children and you hold your child for the first time, and it's like, there's no question. Any any doubts, any confusion about God, uh, looking at that child for the first time, there was no question. And I think about these lost people who have those same moments but are not able to interpret them. How can you interpret them if you don't know? What tool do you have to interpret love with if you don't know? If we love one another, this is John talking, not me. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. His love is made complete in us. So there's, there's something asked of us here, and it's pretty big. I guess one last thing for this verse, too, is that I, I get frustrated sometimes because I think the church is missing so many voices. Part of that is just culture, rebellion, um, things change, people don't want to go to church anymore, whatever. But on the other hand, how many, how many times have we, either by a mistake or thoughtlessness, uh, missed opportunities, failed to connect with somebody. Because, um, you know, I don't want to heap a bunch of guilt on anybody that I wouldn't heap on myself because there are plenty of times I feel awkward about those conversations and probably don't carry them through far enough. But it's just a fact that the church is not uh, the, the ceremony, the order, which I handled so gracelessly this morning, the things that we do. The church is these connections, it's these relationships. That's what brings people together um, to come and worship Christ. So something to think about for us this week is, is how are we handling those connections? Are we praying for God to do something in people's lives without listening for what God wants us to do in people's lives? Verse 13 through 16. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. So John spells it out again in case we'd forgotten it. And it's kind of repetitive through this passage, which I didn't notice before I went through this time. But verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Thinking again of our neighbors and, and those people that we're praying for, those people that we want God to do something in their lives. 
maybe we could have a little more grace if we think of verse 16 and, and realize that the opposite is also true. So for us, so we know and rely on the love God has for us, the opposite is also true. If you don't know on the, about the love God has for you, you can't rely on it. How do you expect people to act? How do you expect people to live if they don't know about the love that God has for them and aren't able to rely on it through the hard times? Let's face it. Good Christians barely get through the hard times. What do we expect people to do if they don't know that? This thing about the Spirit... Um, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Without digressing into a whole other sermon, I really got hung up on that verse, and I, I wanted to say something about it, and that's this. If you're an Orthodox Christian, then you believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is a name that the early church fathers came up with to describe what was obviously happening in the Bible, obviously happening in the story, this super mysterious relationship that can freak you out if you if you dwell too much on it, analyze it too much, and yet I think it's meant to show us the transcendence of God. I wouldn't expect God to be completely definable, um, but one of the things that, that happens that's sad is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father and Son are very easy for us because those are even words that, that correlate with the physical world that we know. And yet the Holy Spirit just kind of gets neglected. You ever notice that? The Holy Spirit's like the forgotten member of the Trinity, just kind of off on sabbatical or something in some churches. And in other churches, people fixate on the Holy Spirit to the point of, um, I think it's fair to say, almost trying to use the Holy Spirit like a magic genie of some kind. Let's, let's rub a lamp and have God do something for us. And humans are so good at going to extremes with whatever we're comfortable and uncomfortable with. But it's not okay to neglect the Spirit. And I think as I was praying about this, the main thing that's on my mind is that so much of the relationship with God's Holy Spirit has to do with listening, just learning to listen and, and, and to pay attention. When you ask God something, expect some kind of a response, maybe not you know some visitation, but that check in your gut that I was talking about. I mean, that's how I knew... You know, I couldn't use that canned sermon. I knew that, you know, to me, that is the Holy Spirit. But I want to share a story with you, a firsthand story um, that happened to me that I thought was so amazing. And this was on a mission trip that, that we were on um, with some high school kids a couple of years ago. And uh, we were on Skid Row, like the real Skid Row in Los Angeles. And um, so we were out there with some of these kids. We were handing out food to homeless people and uh, we took them these little packages with like toothpaste, toothbrushes, stuff like that. And all this to, to kind of serve and say like we do this because God first loved us. We're loving you because God first loved us. And by the way, young people are way better than that. You try to take a bunch of adults out on Skid Row like that, and I don't think it ever would have worked. And we just put these kids on a bus, and they just did it. They never even really asked any questions. <laughs> Their parents did. But <laughs> um, and, and of course, nothing, nothing bad happened. It was fine, and we had a really a great experience. But the craziest thing happened. I was in a group, and there was a girl named Sydney that was in my group, and she was, I think, 16 at the time. And so uh, she told me that, that we came around this corner, and there's two guys, and they're sitting on a stoop, and the guy's got a, a shoebox. And the first thing he says is, do you all want to buy some shoes? And it was kind of an awkward moment because I was like, well, no, not really. Um, and Sydney goes, maybe. How much are they? 
And the guy goes, well, I don't know. And they, they had this really funny bargaining thing going back and forth, this 16-year-old girl and this, like, 50-something homeless man with a new box of shoes. And so I think what they ultimately agreed on was $12. And so, you know, Whitney gave him the $12 and took the shoes. And I have to be honest with you. I was thinking, what's he going to use that $12 for? Like, I'll talk to Whitney later and let her know that that's not a good idea. And so we talked to them for a while. And then this woman comes around the corner pushing a shopping cart. And um, she has no shoes on. Her feet are a mess. Like, they're kind of bloody. And she comes up, and it was just so surreal. You can guess where this is going. Whitney says, do you need some shoes? She says, Lord, yes, I need some shoes. What size do you wear? And they're like seven and a halfs, and the shoes were seven and a halfs. And if you could hit the space bar, Dan, that's her, and those are the shoes. We took a picture because it was so unreal. Isn't God a mystery? And people always ask, if God can do that for that lady who is not significant in our country, that's not a powerful woman. She has no influence over anything, especially not on that day. She's not a world leader. She's not even a community leader. She was just this poor lady that didn't have any shoes. I don't know why she didn't have any shoes. And then God did that for her. And then so many big things happen in the world and we feel like God doesn't intervene, right? And it's a very frustrating and painful question. But I just want to share with you that God, he is working in the world and sometimes I think that what he wants more from us than um, for us to evaluate his methods is for us to learn more about his love and what it means. You know, a lot of things that are wrong in the world are wrong because the world is bent. Um, That's the that's the biblical story. It goes way back to, to Genesis and Adam and Eve in the garden is that the world is bent by sin and yet we act surprised when bad things happen. And I'm not making light of it. It hurts. And when you have a loss, um, you know, I've cried out to God as much as anybody. But the thing that has always pulled me back has been his love. Just little things like this. That love is such a powerful thing. And, you know, I I went through this weird phase in my life once where I wondered if God was good. I didn't doubt if he was there. I just always, since I was a kid, had this sense that God was there. But I went through this stage where I I got kind of fearful, and I thought, is God really good? I know the Jesus story. I grew up with it. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But all these evil things are happening, and is God really good? And then I came back to his love, Because love is such a profound thing when you understand it that if God was not good, there wouldn't be love in the world. If if it was like some people say, well, God's not in charge, Satan's in charge of this world, it's a mess. Would Satan ever allow there to be something like love in the world? The kind of thing that makes us say that it's all worth it, the kind of thing that keeps us going, God is love. And that's one of those loving moments. I mean, I think that is so precious. I look at that picture all the time and I share it all the time. I think it's so important to remember that when we're talking about the Spirit and the way that it works, God will do whatever God wants to do. The reason that that uh, she bought those shoes, did I say her name was Whitney? Sydney is her name. I'm so bad with names. The reason Sydney bought those shoes, she said she came around the corner and the minute she saw the shoes, something in her gut, in her mind, in her heart, she knew she had to buy those shoes. Isn't that weird? Just, just a kid. But she knew she had to buy the shoes and she was obedient. She didn't second guess it. 
And I love that she even negotiated. <laughs> I mean, how adorable is that? So, so they bartered, and you know, but she got the shoes, and then they were immediately delivered to this woman. God can do whatever God wants to do, and our job is to hold on tight to the fact that God is love. We can evaluate him all day. We can, we can make estimations about what he's doing right, what he's doing wrong. But that's where faith comes in, is our faith that God is love. And in the end, that's, that's the last word. All these things that happen in this bent and broken world, the last word is love. I think that's what this passage is trying to teach us. So uh, go ahead and, and go to the next one if you don't mind, Dan. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. It's kind of a repetition of what John already said, isn't it? It's like he wants us to get the point that we're supposed to be like Jesus in this world. Go ahead and go on to the next one, please. And then this is big. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So I used to think and just assume that the opposite of love was hate. I mean, wouldn't you think light and darkness, you know, black and white, love and hate? And I heard someone speak about this passage once, and that's the first time I'd ever really heard this passage, and he elaborated that the opposite of love is really not hate, it's fear, because wherever you find hate in yourself or in others, what's at the roots of it? It really is always fear. Isn't that interesting? Somebody's afraid of something. Somebody's afraid something's going to happen. Somebody's afraid somebody's going to do something to them, take something from them, and it's out of that fear that hate wells up. And yet, John says that there's no fear in love, and God is love. This passage is about a couple of things. I mean, number one, if you really know God, you really know love, and vice versa. If you really know love, you really know God. You don't have to fear, because ultimately there's only one fear. And that, that's the fear about death and how it all ends. That's ultimately the final fear. Because after that, if there's nothing else, there's nothing more for us. There wouldn't be anything else to fear if there was no God because you wouldn't know any better it would be over. But the more beautiful thing is there's nothing to fear if you really do know God, because you know that he's love. You know that you're in his hands. And that ultimate fear would be judgment. That ultimate fear would be you know, that, that uh, condemnation. And yet John says that there is no fear in love, because there's no fear of punishment if you really know God. If you really know God... You know that story of Jesus, and you have accepted that forgiveness. You've accepted that atonement for your sins. Um, verses 19 and 21, just to wind this up. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So John reiterates the why, and then I love how he puts it all into action here, following right into Jesus' footsteps. Because through Jesus, I believe that God really showed us how aware he is that talk is cheap. 
And so now we only have to love our brother and our sister. And Jesus himself said that the highest command and law was to love God with everything. You remember that passage? And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you see where John's getting this stuff straight from Jesus. And then you remember that story with Jesus. And then the man says, well, who is my neighbor? You know, let's look for Let's look for an easy out. And then Jesus hit him with that parable of the good Samaritan. Once again, getting to the point of you already know the answer to that. So let me tell you the story of the good Samaritan to get to your heart because you already know the answer to that. Especially if you're a Christian, you already know the answer to that. Jesus threw out that good Samaritan story and just kind of left him with that. The same way that he did when uh, the stone throwers wanted to kill that adulterous woman, right? Whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. And he just left him with that. Same way he did to the rich young ruler. Jesus, I've done this, 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 and this, and I'm super holy. Why don't you sell everything that you have? You know, he asked for the one thing that that the rich young ruler couldn't give him. So, And didn't John just do the same thing to us here? A passage that's so familiar, and yet it's so rich that I don't think we can ever understand it unless we keep coming back to it. And so, in conclusion, I just want to say this. I thought, you know, probably because... Um, of thinking of my grandpa, thinking about Memorial Day and all that. I, I thought about places I've been in the world where there was hate. You could just kind of feel the hate. Um, when we went to Ground Zero in Manhattan and, and visited that, and there was that, that ugly tension. This was before the memorial was built. We were there. Uh, you just feel that, that heaviness, that burden of you know some bad, hateful thing that happened there. Um, when we were in Vietnam, we went to a, a site there called My Lai, which any of you veterans probably are familiar with you know, with that place, and, and it was, you know, a really difficult place to be. Uh, even when I was in Montana, Little Bighorn, just, just places where things happen that people feel a little uncomfortable about, don't necessarily want to think about all the time, don't necessarily want to talk about. And what can redeem that? Is it politics? Is it money, memorials? Is it, you know, trade agreements with other countries? All these things that, that we are so focused on. Or is this passage about the only thing in this whole world that can take this full circle and redeem it, which is love. Not some cheap little silly version of love. Not I'm going to be nice kind of love. Because if God is love, then love was ultimately represented by Christ and what Christ did for us. And that was anything but easy, anything but cheap, anything but simple, and anything but painless. That was sacrifice. That was a sacrificial love. So, in conclusion, we know that story. We know what Christ did for us. Let's be careful this week when we go out of this place to spend less time judging this world, less time praying that you know God will do some hocus pocus to reveal himself in this world and fix it and start looking into our own hearts and asking ourselves what God's calling us to do to reveal Christ into this world. The world can't be fixed. But individual lives can be redeemed. And that's the beautiful thing about love. Heavenly Father, just thank you for what you've already revealed to us. 
Thank you that you will continue to reveal yourself. Thank you that you will poke and you will prod. You'll make us uncomfortable where we're comfortable. But it's the best kind of love. It's the kind of love that brings us closer to you, brings our neighbors closer to you. It's the kind of love that answers the questions about what's wrong with this world and how can we possibly fix it. So help us to see more of that. Help us to bring more of that this week. And help us to truly understand what it means to love our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.